This week, LATAM judge grants contested backstop fee motion. Fifth Circuit affirms ultra-petroleum ruling allowing for rejection of FERC-regulated contracts without FERC approval. Cineworld adjusted EBITDA rises to $455 million from a $115 million loss. Concerns about talent hedge positions intensify. Hello and welcome to the Reorg Podcast, where we bring the latest developments in high-yield distressed debt and bankruptcy. I'm David Zupkis. Julian Bolan will be joining me for the Week in Review. For this week's Deep Dive, Reorg Sean Daly and Evan Wallach, President and CEO of Global Air Finance Services, Inc., and advisor to institutional investors and aircraft leasing companies, discuss Enhanced Equipment Trust Certificates, or EETCs, a tax-efficient security utilized in aircraft finance. Evan and Sean discuss the structure of EETCs, the benefits to airline issuers and investors, and take a close look at two recent EETC issues that were subject to rejection in Chapter 11. A primer on EETCs authored by Evan can be found on the Reorg webinars and podcast page. March 24th, from Reorg and Partners Fiona Huntress and Matthew Getz from Law Firm Palace Partners LLP for a live webinar examining the impact of sanctions on loan and other financial obligations owed to and by Russian parties. Please reach out to a Reorg representative to register. It's Friday, March 18th. In a memorandum decision issued Tuesday afternoon, Judge James Garrity Jr. granted the LATAM Airlines debtor's motion to approve contested backstop fees and other consideration for the creditors and equity holders that would collectively provide up to approximately $5.4 billion in new capital under the debtor's proposed plan of reorganization. Judge Garrity found that the backstop parties are providing, quote, necessary funding to the debtors on terms that are fair and reasonable, and authorization of the debtors to enter into and perform under the backstop agreements is integral to the debtor's pursuit of the plan. Backstop approval also clears the way for the court to enter an order approving the debtor's disclosure statement. Judge Garrity said at a February 1st hearing that the court was prepared to approve the DS subject to resolution of objections to the then-yet-to-be-heard backstop motion. The Official Committee of Unsecured Creditors, Indentured Trustee Banco Estado, the Arnold and Porter Ad Hoc Unsecured Group, and Minority Equity Holder Columbus Hill Capital Management opposed the backstop motion, calling a $734 million commitment fee due to the Evercore Group egregious and suggesting that the fee violates Chilean law, among other issues. The Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals on Monday affirmed bankruptcy judge Marvin Isger's rulings in Ultra Petroleum's 2020 bankruptcy that the debtors could reject an executory contract containing a rate subject to Federal Energy Regulatory Commission regulation without concurrently obtaining FERC approval, finding that post-rejection, FERC cannot require continued performance on the rejected contract, and that the bankruptcy rejection does not conflict with FERC's jurisdiction of filed rates. The opinion also affirms the Bankruptcy Court's ruling in connection with confirmation that Section 1129A6 of the Bankruptcy Code did not require the Bankruptcy Court to seek FERC's approval before it confirmed Ultra's plan because rejection is not a, quote, rate change contemplated by 1129A6. The opinion also finds that Ultra did not seek to reject the contract because the rates were excessive, which would represent a prohibited collateral attack on the rate itself, but sought rejection because it wants out of the contract altogether, given the suspension of its drilling program and its non-use of the volume reservation. The opinion reiterates that to avoid being a collateral attack on a filed rate, rejection must be based on other reasons beyond the fact that the debtor would like to pay a lower rate, since either modification of the rate or full abrogation of the agreement requires FERC's approval. UK cinema chain operator Cineworld said it swung to a preliminary 2021 adjusted EBITDA of about $455 million from a $115 million loss recorded in 2020, mainly due to longer cinema operating periods in 2021 compared with 2020. The company said its 2021 results were severely impacted by COVID-19-related cinema closures. The company also, in its preliminary 2021 financial statements, provided a base case and a severe but plausible downside scenario. 
In the base case, the company says that while it would maintain headroom against available cash and debt facilities throughout the going concern assessment period, and that financial covenants would not be breached, it does consider there to be a material uncertainty as to whether the group will be able to pay down the RCF as at the June 2022 covenant testing date. Cineworld concludes the base case discussion by stating that given some uncertainty over liquidity, the board is assessing several options with regard to additional sources of liquidity, including the increase of the rest of the world or ROW private placement loan. Under the severe but plausible downside scenario, which assumes a lack of film content, Cineworld models 50% of base case admission levels for two months, then averaging 70% of 2019 levels from July through to December 2022, with admissions gradually returning to the base case levels in January 2023 and beyond. According to the company, under this scenario, the group would breach its net leverage covenant in June 2022 and its minimum liquidity covenant in September 2022, and would not have sufficient liquidity to repay the RCF in February 2023. Concerns about Talon Energy's hedge positions have intensified as power prices in the PJM interconnection have held it near their highest levels this year, according to sources. PJM Western Hub peak calendar month futures for April 2022 are currently trading at about $56 per megawatt hour, compared with about $43 per megawatt hour at the start of the year and a contract high of $58 per megawatt hour seen in early February. The company's credit default swaps have moved wider in recent days, with three-year spreads reaching as high as 9,833 bips on March 15th, compared with about 6,000 at the start of the month, according to Bloomberg prices. The one-year CDS spread reached 14,399 bips on March 15th, from about 8,000 bips at the beginning of March. The one-year CDS carries an upfront fee of 61 bips, and the three-year with 70 bips up front. As recent as the end of last year, liquidity was constrained by an accompanying increase in cash collateral postings for hedge positions. In December, Talon obtained a first lien commodity accorded in facility from a lender group led by Golden Tree Asset Management and Silverpoint Finance, with proceeds used primarily to fund elevated commodity working capital requirements during the winter period to repay $238 million of borrowings outstanding under the Talon Energy Supply Revolving Credit Facility, and also to fund up to $200 million for working capital and other general corporate purposes. Talon Energy is reportedly working with Weil Gottschall and Evercore. The ad hoc group of secured and unsecured bondholders is advised by Perilla Weinberg and Paul Weiss, with a group of term loan lenders represented by Houlihan Loki and King and & Spaulding. Top red stories this week included District Court vacates original decision allowing 2013 restructuring fiduciary duty claims against SIVA and Apollo to proceed, finds former employees suit barred by statute of limitations. Sixth Circuit hacks away at foundations of LTL doctrine. Judge Walrath denies mezzanine lenders stay relief standing in PWM, venue reform at the local level. Aldrich pump debtors, train affiliates, ask court to halt asbestos claimant litigation pending claims estimation. AMC Entertainment Holdings, Inc. announces investment purchasing 22% of Highcraft Mining Holding Corporation. And now here's Kathy from Los Angeles with the week ahead. Hello, today is Friday, March 18th. Next week, in litigation coverage of surprise medical billing legislation, there will be a hearing on Monday, March 21st, on cross motions for summary judgment in the Consolidated District of Columbia District Court litigation challenging the interim route implementing out-of-network arbitration provisions of the Federal No Surprises Act. On Wednesday, March 23rd, Purdue Pharma will seek a further extension of the preliminary injunction barring opioid-related litigation against non-debtors, whereas the Zohar debtors will seek approval of their disclosure statement to their liquidating plan on the same day. On Thursday, March 24th in Mallinckrodt, Athar royalty claimant Sanofi and Athar insurance claimants Atestor and Humana will seek a stay of initial fixed distributions to general unsecured claims on the plan effective date pending their appeals of the confirmation order. They will also ask for a certification of their appeals for direct review by the Third Circuit. 
That same day, there will be some action in the PWM property management cases when the debtors will seek a 120-day extension of their plan filing and solicitation exclusivity periods. SL Green Affiliate 245 Park Member LLC and various mezzanine lenders have filed an objection, including filing a competing creditor Chapter 11 plan under seal. Also on Thursday, March 24th, the Alto Maipo debtors will seek to assume their third amended restructuring agreement, as well as their power purchase agreement with Minera Las Palambras, or MLP, in response to unilateral attempts by MLP to terminate the agreement. The debtors say the agreement is critical for their go-forward business plan for emergence. As for earnings, we will see earnings reported by Carnival Corporation on Tuesday, March 22nd, followed two days later by TPC Group on Thursday, March 24th. That's it for me from Los Angeles. Back to you in New York. For this week's Deep Dive, Rurik Sean Daly talks to Evan Wallach, a president and CEO of Global Air Finance Services, Inc., an advisor to institutional investors and aircraft leasing companies about Enhanced Equipment Trust Certificates, or EETCs, a tax-efficient security utilized in aircraft finance. Evan and Sean discuss the structure of EETCs, the benefit to airlines, issuers, and investors, and take a close look at two recent EETC issues that were subject to rejection in Chapter 11. Hello, this is America's core credit distressed at legal analyst, Sean Daly. Joining us again on the podcast is Evan Wallach, President and CEO of Global Air Finance Services, Inc., an advisory firm to clients in the aviation industry with a primary focus on advising institutional investors on investing in securities issued by airlines, aircraft and engine leasing companies, and advising aircraft leasing companies on the purchase, sale, and financing of aircraft and engines. If you caught the podcast a couple of weeks ago, Evan was on kind of walking us through some of the, the issues that are now coming up in relation uh, to leased and and financed aircraft in Russia and Ukraine and the impact of of Russian sanctions. So for a a slightly different discussion today, um, Evan will be walking us through enhanced equipment trust certificates in in their role in aircraft finance. So Evan, uh, thank you. Thank you for joining us again. Uh, great. Thank you, Sean. Uh, and thank you to Reorg Research. Uh, yeah, yeah, pleasure to be with you again. Uh, so I just want to say a happy St. Patrick's Day to all, all of our Irish friends. Um, as we discussed in our last podcast, you know, Ireland has played a very significant role uh, for the aviation industry over the past 20 years. So just want to do a shout out to our it, Irish brothers and sisters. And Evan, all that, all that Irish activity, are people moving to Dublin for the weather or is there, is there another motivating factor? Well, they they were one of the first to um, institute a very low tax rate on uh, global uh, income. So, um, as a global as leasing companies are really global entities generating revenue from all over the world, it was an ideal place for uh, aircraft leasing companies to be domiciled in Dublin and use the Dublin um, domicile as their tax base. So, it, it created a tremendous amount of activity and jobs, you know, for, for the Irish uh, community there. And it's been a great place, uh, very, very supportive of the uh, aircraft leasing business over the last 20 years. Makes so uh, right. as you mentioned uh, today, we're going to discuss uh, how the airlines utilize um, enhanced equipment trust certificates or WTCs as a mechanism to raise capital at pricing, which reflects a much higher rated company than the airline's standalone corporate credit rating. So I'm gonna give a brief introduction on just the basics of the WTC structure, uh, talk a little bit about the benefits to both the airline issuer and the investors, 
going to look at a qu uh, quickly look at how the rating analysis achieves higher ratings, which then allows the bankers to issue bonds at significantly lower pricing than the airline's unsecured bond rating. And we're going to look at how WTCs have fared during the significant economic uh, impact events of the past 30 years. Uh, we're going to take a look at how WTCs have performed during uh, the two-year COVID crisis beginning in March of 2020. So just for a more extensive discussion um, of WTC basics, I, I would recommend that uh, anyone in the audience Google intro to WTCs. Uh, this would, for the extended teach-in that I gave a few months ago with Phil Bagley, who was the uh, airline analyst at uh, S&P. And then finally, Sean and I are going to take a look at the two WTC issues that were rejected by two airlines during COVID when both airlines filed for bankruptcy. And we'll discuss why this action was such an anomaly for, for the WTC market. Okay, so uh, let's get started. Uh, what is an Enhanced Equipment Trust Certificate? So the uh, WTC is a public uh, or private rate of security that relies on the credit of a single airline issuer. Uh, it's secured primarily by aircraft, but could be uh, secured by engines and parts as well. Uh, it utilizes a liquidity facility, uh, which uh, covers 18 to 24 months of interest payments. Uh, it utilizes over collateralization to the senior tranches. And it relies on the legal, legal remedies from Section 1110 of the US Bankruptcy Code uh, or the Cape Town Convention. So let's look at some of the benefits to the issuer. Uh, it's lower financing costs uh, due to the higher ratings that are achieved, relatively short time frame to go to market to issue a new paper, uh, access to multiple investor bases, both investment grade and high yield. Uh, there's a pre-funding option for the airline, which allows them to match drawdowns to meet the uh, delivery schedule of new aircraft. There's enhanced operational flexibility. So there's few covenants or consents needed uh, under the structure. And the bonds usually have a long amortization schedule um, of principal and interest, which frankly, you know, en enables the uh, airline to pay it back over a long period of time, typically 12 to 15 years. Uh, what are the benefits to the investors? Uh, so WTCs are typically secured by new or newer aircraft with very long useful lives. Uh, over collateralization um, gives senior tranches a 50% loan to value or two to one coverage against the aircraft value. The junior tranches are typically at about 70% loan to value. So again, good, good coverage. The junior tranches uh, are able to obtain higher yields with strong collateral protection and also with shorter maturities. Uh, the legal structures have been tested um, with multiple U.S. bankruptcies over the last 20 years. Uh, there's a very deep investor base that provides high liquidity. Uh, bonds are traded off the uh, corporate desks, uh, corporate debt desks. And secondary trading uh, is provided by multiple desks, uh, which provides for price transparency and price efficiency. And there's a very deep research library uh, that comes from multiple investment banks. So let's, let's talk a little bit about, you know, what, how the ratings process uh, achieves higher ratings, which in turn results in lower pricing for the airline bonds. So the components that, that we're going to look at are the airline credit, the aircraft collateral, what's the legal protection, uh, and the liquidity facility. 
And the ratings reflect the probability of timely payment of interest and ultimate repayment of principal. And so the higher ratings are achieved by incorporating these, uh, these structural enhancements. So when we look at the airline credit, we're looking at what's, what's the uh, airline's current corporate credit rating, what's the airline's current WTC rating, if it has one, what's the airline's likelihood of reorganizing in bankruptcy, and what's the airline's ability to continue to fund uh, its operations, primarily maintenance events that are coming up during bankruptcy. Now we're going to look at what's the aircraft collateral evaluation. Different aircraft types are important, uh, whether it's narrow body, wide body, regional jets or freighters. What's the engine type? Is it GE, is it Pratt, is it Rolls, is it CFM? How critical is the aircraft collateral to the airlines, airline issuers operations? Um, how broad is the aircraft user base? If the aircraft were to come back, how quickly could it be sold, liquefied, remar or remarketed? And what's the technical and obsolescence risks that, that uh, we have to be aware of for that particular aircraft type? So if we look at then the next, uh, the third piece is the legal considerations. Uh, there's full recourse to the issuer. Um, the, is the, the investors uh, get a section 1110 uh, and Cape Town convention protections in bankruptcy. There's cross default, cross collateral protections for the notes. Uh, there's foreclosure, repossession, and sale rights for each of the tranches. And there are control provisions, <coughs> excuse me, and buyout rights for the subordinated tranches. And this is what Sean and I are going to talk about in more detail um, uh, later on. So I thought it'd be important just to look at some of the historical evolution and, and you know, the growth of the WTC issuance market from, the, uh, from 1994 to today. So uh, first bonds were issued back in 1994 by Northwest Airlines. Um, and uh, the, the product basically evolved out of, uh, out of uh, securities that were being issued by both the railroad industry and by uh, the mortgage companies. Um, during the 90s, all the big airlines, American, Delta, Continental, uh, United, US Air, everybody issued WTCs to, for financing their aircraft. FedEx and Atlas Air joined in as well, issuing the first cargo-backed aircraft uh, WTCs. So we, we peaked at an issuance of about 10 billion in 2001, pre 9-11. Then of course we had 9-11 occurred and that basically shut down air travel globally as well as shut down capital markets. So if we, if we move into the next phase, which would be the 2002 to 2007 phase, during this phase, uh, we really had a testing of the WTC structure. Um, during 2022, uh, started with United filing for bankruptcy, and there was a lot of panic selling by the uh, institutional invest, uh, investment grade investors during this time. Uh, WTCA tranches traded in the 70s, the Bs into the 50s, and Cs traded down into the 30s. Uh, then we saw US Air file for bankruptcy, and we so we were seeing the first testing of the, of the uh, Section 1110 provision, which basically requires the airline to decide within 60 days whether it's going to affirm the contract or whether it's going to reject the aircraft. And so what we saw was that the airlines would play, would go to the 50, day 59, and then they would say, okay, we're going to affirm the contract, which basically then required them to start making payments again. So the the risk of getting planes back basically you know, was, was mitigated. 
the rating agencies, they'll put all the WTCs on credit watch negative. And um, we saw continued bankruptcies during the time frame, uh, United, uh, Delta File, Northwest, US Air. But all the WTCs, frankly, performed very, very well, very, very strong. Um, almost 99% of them re were reaffirmed by the, by the airlines. And so by 2007, you saw, you know, senior tranches back in par, B tranches traded back up into the 90s, and C tranches were now, you know, in the, in the mid 80s. So things look good until, of course, we hit the big recession in 2008, a great, a great recession. So let's look at the 2008 to 2019 timeframe. <coughs> Excuse me. Uh, 2009, 10, rating agencies downgraded again, all the WTCs. American then filed for bankruptcy 2011. And what happened in, during at this point? Very, very little. There was very little panic selling. Um, uh, investors hold, held very firm. Bonds traded down just slightly. And so they held up very, very well. And again, American reaffirmed all of its WTC contracts. Uh, we started to see some international airlines issuing WTCs now. Um, of course, it started out with the majors, the British Airways, the Air Canada's, the, the Emirates. And then 2015, 2016, we actually saw a couple of smaller international airlines issuing uh, WTCs. And this was LATAM, Norwegian, uh, Turkish Air, and Virgin Australia. And we're gonna come back to these uh, later on. But again, there were some structural enhancements to the, uh, to the deal. Uh, all the deals now were cross-collateralized and cross-defaulted, giving the investors really, really strong protection uh, with the collateral. And so uh, by 2015, again, we had about a 7 billion issuance of, of uh, new bonds all oversubscribed. But over the next few years, as the airlines continue to, to um, strengthen and their balance sheet strengthens and their credit rating strengthen, the need for the WTC product, frankly, uh, dissipated a little bit. So we didn't see much issuance uh, in, the, in the latter part of the decade. Um, but one thing we did see was we saw extensive market efficiency uh, in pricing. Um, many, many uh, investment banks were putting out a very, very good research product on WTCs. So I think investors were very, very comfortable with the product. So now let's take a look at now what happened during COVID, you know, which, which hit in March of 2020. As we all know, global travel completely shut down uh, around the world. Um, IATA was projecting that we wouldn't recover uh, uh, 2019 levels until 2024. Rating agencies acted quickly. They put all, all uh, airlines on credit watch negative. WTCs were downgraded. Secondary trading prices uh, were now reflecting you know, uh, that distress. Um, so we were seeing A's in the 90s, B's were trading into the 70s, and C's were down into the 50s. Uh, the smaller international credits that air, airline issues that we saw, they were now trading, you know, anywhere from 50 to 70 percent of par. So uh, investors, though, were showing a lot of patience. We didn't see any kind of panic selling whatsoever. Um, and uh, at this point, the 2020, the large airlines uh, received massive government assistance and they were able to raise billions in the capital markets. And one thing they did do is they came into the WTC market because they took unencumbered aircraft that they had and they created new WTC structures, which again, gave them very, very low pricing because of the, the higher ratings that they were achieving. 
And so they're able to raise capital about nine billion in new double ETCs um, in, in late 2020, which became very, very important for their liquidity. So by March, April 2021, frankly, secondary pricing, you know, had returned to pre-COVID levels. And by July, August of uh, 2021, you could say we had again achieved a market stabilization. You know, ratings had bottomed out, and the outlook looked uh, now looked very stable. So that brings us kind of up to where we are today. Um, you know, pre-invasion um, um, of Russia into Ukraine. I mean, frankly, the market was really starting to recover and stabilize. Uh, we're sort of on hold right now, given the chaos there, but. Um, Going to turn it back down uh, now back to Sean, and I guess we're going to talk about some of the, um, you know, some of the anomalies that occurred on WTCs during during COVID. Thanks, Evan. Yeah, I think maybe let's start with um, one of the the smaller, newer issuers you mentioned, Norwegian Air Shuttle. Um, and so we're we're talking about this because there's been some litigation. But uh, I guess a quick overview of the facts. So Norwegian uh, issued a, a dual class uh, WTC in 2016. Norwegian subsidiary entered into some long-term leases. And then the Norwegian subsidiary, the, the lessee, filed for an Irish restructuring proceeding in November 2020. And as I understand it, the filing triggered a right for the Junior B certificates to buy out the A's. And this is, this is where it starts to get interesting. So Aries uh, and, and some affiliates as a holder of the B's exercised that buyout right. So after the buyout, uh, Aries and its affiliates held 100% of the outstanding A's and 70% of the B's. Then Aries directed Wilmington Trust, the, uh, the agent, on the facility to conduct a sale process for the aircraft. Uh, and this, this is where it gets contentious. Some holders of the bees after the fact said, hey, this, you know, this was a terrible process. They, they sued Aries uh, in VMO leasing, um, saying in, in short, one, you didn't run a commercially reasonable sale process. And two, you Wilmington Trust, Trust breached your fiduciary duties to certificate holders uh, in areas you uh, you know you aided and abetted that breach. So what what happened in the auction process? Uh, VMO submitted a 250 million stocking horse bid, and this is relative to just to give a, a sense of proportion. Uh, the aircraft, when acquired in 2016, were appraised at approximately 500 million bucks, uh, and then there were three. Uh, value analyses conducted right before the auction process. The, the lowest came in at 244 million, and then there was one in the mid 270s and one at, at 290. Uh, so that's relative to this $250 million stocking horse bid. And then what makes that interesting, it was just enough to clear the A's. There were approximately $230 million of outstanding A's and enough to, to clear some other um, agent fees but it was all a credit bid, and it zeroed essentially the uh, the non-participating Bs, uh, including Carval and Hudson Structured Capital Management, who are now suing Aries and VMO. Uh, so I guess I'll, I'll leave it there. There are a couple of sale process points to touch on, but Evan, if you could just kind of you know maybe 
give us a sense from Aries' perspective. Maybe run us through a few of the numbers. What's you know what's the idea here? Why why go through all this effort uh, right. to ex you know exercise a buyout right and then run a run a sale process for these aircraft? Yeah, yeah, sure. So um, just just before we go through it, uh, let's just recap a little bit about the big picture. So you know the the uh, over the last twenty years of WTC issuance, um, I think the study that was done showed like 99.9% of the A's were recovered, ninety eight point five, and the B's were recovered. So the 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 recovery and the repayment of WTC securities was you know extremely high. And so uh, most airlines, um, of the, the big airlines, when they, you know, when they went into bankruptcy and had the option to reject the aircraft, they didn't uh, because they saw there, there was still value in the aircraft that they, that they owned. Most of these were WTCs financed the purchase of an aircraft by, by the airline. So the airline has equity value in, in, the, in the assets. And they basically, you know, if they were going to restructure, why reject a young airplane if you're going to be looking at a 20-year life for that asset and you use it, you know, in your fleet over that period of time? Why go through the brain damage of trying to restructure and re reject aircraft that, that you know you're going to want to use uh, over the over the course of the next, you know, 10 to 15 years? So in almost every case, the uh, the 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 major airlines just said, okay, we're going to reaffirm the contract and we'll continue to pay the debt service. What happened with LATAM and with Norwegian in, to, in, in COVID in 20, 2021 was, I would, I would say, a very much an anomaly with, within the aircraft world. Um, and the motivation, as I see it, from um, Ares was they hooked up with an aircraft leasing company called VMO, and they basically decided, that they, they, they said, you know, this is a way that we can buy young aircraft at, at a discount to where, where the market is trading right now. And there was a lot of distress in the market. A lot of aircraft were being returned, rejected, lessees were, were paying. So um, I think that, uh, again, it was, it was a motivation for Aries and VMO to think maybe we can buy the bonds as a way to buy the aircraft inexpensively. On the other side was the, the airline. The airline both Latam and Norwegian looked at what they what their equity value was in the aircraft. I mean, these were five year old aircraft. They paid fifty million on the seven three seven eight hundred, paid roughly fifty million a piece um, at you know at five years earlier. And typically, the 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 asset values would have held up much higher five years after issuance. However, because of COVID, because of this you know catastrophe in air travel. The valuations of these five-year-old airplanes was probably had dropped about thirty percent from where they would have been without COVID hitting. So you probably you know would have been looking at under normal conditions, aircraft valued at about thirty-five to thirty-eight million five years five-year-old seven three seven eight hundreds. Unfortunately, because of COVID and because of all the distress and excess aircraft in the market coming on, the valuations were now in the in the mid to high 20s. And so I think Norwegian and LATAM, they both looked at what they were paying in debt service um, for the uh, WTC bonds that they had issued. And when they did the math, I think they realized that they were paying more in debt service going forward if they affirmed the contract than if they rejected the airplanes, gave up whatever you know phantom equity they had, and then leased them back in 
at least at, at rent payments that were going to be lower than what they had than what they were paying in debt service. So I think everyone was a bit shocked when day 60 came in the bankruptcy uh, proceeding and both and Norwegian, you know, using Norwegian, they basically they said, look, we, we, we want we're going to reject all 10 airplanes. And so um, the bondholders, I think, were scrambling then to figure out, you know, what to do. These weren't, you know, bond, WTC bondholders are not aircraft people. You know, they're basically corporate investors that are buying a secured air, you know, corporate corporate security. So uh, but there, there's a process in place and there's a liquidity facility. And so they were getting paid interest during this period of time under the liquidity facility. So the bonds were not in default, but um, the, the, the bondholder groups now could decide what they want, what they wanted to do. So I think what happened was the, um, <coughs> the, the process, um, allowed, um, an Aries or somebody like them basically then to acquire hundred percent of the A's, um, and to pay off the, a, the class, the pay off the class A holders at par, and now they can control the collateral. And so they then in their position as, as, a, as a B holder, which effectively were now, they were now the equity in the airplanes. They were able to then uh, uh, ask the trustee to have, a, have a, uh, an auction process, which allowed them to then foreclose, uh, to foreclose on, the, on the aircraft. And so that's where it gets murky. Um, I think that if they had to, you know, if, if, if they were paying par for the Bs as well as the As, I think the numbers would have ended up to be a little bit more on a per plane basis than what the market value was at uh, what the what the values were for the airplanes at that time. But I think because they were buying, they the the Bs were being traded, you know, pre uh, uh, pre bankruptcy or or pre-bankruptcy of Norwegian at a, at a 60 to 70% uh, cents on the dollar, they may have been buying up the Bs at a discount so that when they when they looked at how much they paid for the Bs, now what they had to pay for the As, they were still then able to foreclose on the collateral and basically now own the aircraft at a price per plane, which was a little bit lower than where the market was for the airplanes. So, I mean, to me, when I look at the numbers, Basically, they ended up being able to buy the airplanes for about 25, you know, 25 million a piece when the, the market value was probably, you know, 28, 29 million a piece. So from their standpoint, as a uh, going from being, an, you know, a bondholder to now being an, an aircraft leasing guy, I mean, it was it was a smart it was a smart strategy for them to uh, to to go through that. It's not as if they were the only ones that knew that. I mean, there were other leasing guys, you know, that looked at the same, that looked at it the same, the same way. The 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 issue here is who controlled the auction, and I think that's where you know it goes from being a commercial transaction to being a legal dispute, and um, you know that's that's kind of where you know the other bees were getting were getting pushed out, and you know where they're claiming that there wasn't an appropriate auction for the um, for the collateral. Which might have brought in somebody to pay twenty nine thirty million per plane, which would have then uh, uh, resulted in the bees being uh, being fully repaid, uh, being being fully repaid as well. So that's kind of it. <laughs> I hope that's that's kind of it in a nutshell. Uh, you know, from, from the economic standpoint, um, 
So I'll leave, put, put it back, put it back to you, Sean. Yeah. Yeah. So that's, that's maybe a, a good opportunity to go into the sale process and, and just a little more detail. Um, but real quick, well, it's, well, it's fresh, Evan. I, I think you mentioned, you know, kind of looking at it, rough picture, it looked like uh, BMO wound up paying 25 million a plane for something that uh, I think you, you may have mentioned earlier, let's call it in the absence of COVID may have been worth as much as the high 30 millions. Yeah, I mean, pre, pre COVID, these same airplanes, um, you know, these are the workhorse of the global fleet, seven, three, seven, eight hundreds. Uh, yeah. I mean, they were, they were holding up very, very well uh, in, in terms of their value and in terms of what lease rates uh, lessees were paying for, for these airplanes. So pre pre COVID, uh, these were probably, you know, 35, 37 million, per, you know, per, per, per plane. But uh, there was nothing, again, nothing specific about the Norwegian planes or the Latam plane. This was a global uh, uh, phenomenon of, on, on the entire global fleet. So, you know, every five-year-old 737-800, you know, had dropped 30% in value. And, and it was basically because you know, of the thousands of them that were out there, the lessees that were using them were paying, you know, 300,000, 325,000 a month. Basically, they came into the lessors and said, during COVID, we can't pay anything, you know? So as a result, the demand, you know, the, the, the demand dropped drastically for the aircraft. So it just, you know, it just happened at that moment that there was a window, you know, for, um, uh, you know, for uh, Aries slash VMO to come in and, you know, buy the buy the foreclose and then buy the aircraft out. Yeah, so I, I I like that comment you made that that this particular model is sort of the the workhorse of the global yeah. fleet. That was one of the points raised by uh, the plaintiffs in this lawsuit. They said, you know, it's it's kind of ridiculous that this you know highly liquid aircraft wouldn't draw any other qualified bids. So that's that's a I guess a good way to segment back to the the, the uh, alleged flaws in the sale process. Uh, there was a 26-day timeline, a break fee of $25 million on a $250 million bid. So 10%, I mean, that's I've, I've never seen anything right. that high. Um, right. five, minim, $5 million minimum initial overbid if the stocking horse was topped. Yeah. Uh, some allegations it wasn't marketed or advertised well. And then apparently... The uh, the agent here rejected. There was another potential bidder mm -hmm. uh, that came in with a two hundred sixty million dollar bid, but again, sort of didn't hit the the. Uh, it, it wouldn't make sense in light of the the break fee to break switch horses right. and take that one. Right. Um, all or nothing on the ten aircraft, so you can I guess smaller yeah. lessors couldn't come in and bid on one or two. Uh, and they were sold as is, where is, which I guess wouldn't leave the opportunity for bidders to conduct their physical inspection. Uh, but so at any rate, you know, there are all these allegations about the process. Yeah. And yeah. in January of this year, the New York state court that was hearing the lawsuit dismissed the claims for breach of contract um, and violating, you know, essentially for not having held a commercially reasonable sale. Those claims are all gone. Mm -hmm. But the court did allow to survive breach of fiduciary duty claims against Wilmington Trust and then aiding and abetting breach of fiduciary duty against Aries and VMO. So it's interesting here is, you know, some of these process protections, they, from a bankruptcy perspective, they sound relatively familiar. You know, right. you can 
uh, raise, raise your eyebrow to 10% break fee or, or something like that. But, uh, you know, structurally this all seems relatively usual, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. there's uh, a, a group and I kind of defer to you on, on describing this group in a little bit better detail, but the aviation working group came out with, I guess, some statements or some principles maybe for how to, you know, address these situations in the future. And they focused entirely on sort of, you know, what makes a commercially reasonable sale. Right. And in, which is just interesting to me because those are the claims the court dismissed. So that was, you know, the court sort of didn't really bat, bat an eyelid that, that that sale process was fine. And, and one of the things that comes up from the aviation working group is the idea of prohibiting uh, breakup fees, mm-hmm. which again, from a bankruptcy perspective, it's like, oh, well, you see them all the time. Why, right. why would that be? Part of it, but I, I don't know if anything right. about this process sort of you know is is this a process that this auction process has been used a lot for WETC aircraft or or not much in the past? I mean, is there right. you know how does it, how does it look from the aviation side of the world? Yeah, yeah, no. So this is the first time that we've seen the the process that's been built into a WETC structure actually being used. So again, like in bankruptcy, we saw how the the Section 1110 you know process worked worked when it when when uh, we started having bankruptcies back in 2002, and it worked very well. So now we had a tremendous precedent for that process. We have never we had never seen um, how the process for a a public you know WTC uh, buyout was going was going to work. So that's kind of interesting. It's interesting that this is the first time that it's being that's being used. What's what's different here? Yeah, as you said, most most of most of the procedures that that you that we that we went through, you would see were be very typical, you know, in a, in a bankruptcy situation where there's a credit bid, you know, and somebody comes in to buy the securities and they hold them, and then you know they they're buying them because they think that with the restructuring and with the receipt of you know other other you know uh, you know assets or, or stock that those that that um, those are going to be those are going to you know you buy them at 50 cents and if things go well you can sell them at at 70 80 or par you know down down the road as a as a security the difference here is that you this was not to buy the securities this was to buy the aircraft that's the difference and so again maybe you know we've seen this in real estate transactions you know where you buy the securities to buy the buy the building that you know down the road but in our in in aviation world i mean you're buying and selling aircraft all the time you know and, and there's always auction processes going on for portfolios of aircraft that lessors are selling and you have a you know uh, a, you know an rfp that's sent out and everybody comes in and here's the procedure and you go through the steps so the you know the aircraft selling and buying process it's it's pretty well established within the aviation community and so what we saw in this situation with a breakup fee with a, you know with such a short time frame where basically you know the the you know the um the bidder the, the owner was contr- was was bidding against uh, you know other other buyers coming in you know, it, it it just it just didn't pass the smell, pass the smell test. You know, for most for most aviation guys, is like what is you know this they they really pulled a fast one here. Um, is how it was viewed by the aviation community. And I just want to say one other point that's very important. Mm-hmm. So both Hudson and Carval, these are very 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 experienced aircraft guys. 
they know they they these are like you know babe in the woods bond holders these are these are you know very experienced aircraft owners of both bonds and assets so they're very familiar with the auction process and so i think that's why they were so you know uh, angry you know that the rug was kind of pulled out from under them because they didn't even have a chance to bid you know i mean you think about it these were you know uh, you know air, aircraft guys who you know, if the rules had been fair, they would have been bidding for their own bonds, you know, to buy, to buy the aircraft. Uh, and it would have been a competitive process and it would have raised the price. It would have raised the proceeds, you know, for the bot, for the bees to get paid out. So uh, I just want to make it clear. These were, these were not babe in the woods, you know, institutional investors that own the bees. These were as knowledgeable about aircraft as VMO and Aries were. So mm -hmm. uh, I, I, frankly, I think the, the, um, um, aircraft working group. I mean, these are, this is a group of very high level lawyers, uh, manufacturing representatives, uh, you know, very, very, it's called a very high level advisory group to the industry that opines on a lot of different things. And so I think their recommendation, even though the court didn't, I guess, didn't really follow it. It actually was, it actually was, 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 uh, used by American airlines in one of its um, uh, late 2021 WTC issues, where they put into the docs a lot of these, a lot of these, you know, recommendations from the from the group about to uh, you know to um, mitigate against this auction process happening again. Interesting. Okay, so it may not, you know, even if even if the stars were to align and in the facts. Uh, let let someone make another run at this kind of maneuver. It, it just may not be allowed legally under the docs anymore. Well, exactly. Yeah. Anymore going forward. Going now, sure. one issue which which I, which I think is important is that so this this if this were allowed again, I mean it's a it's a potential hole in the um, in all the WTCs. You know, uh, 120 billion of WTCs that have been issued up to this point. So it kind of raises the question, will the market start to distinguish between, you know, WTC issued, you know, uh, you know, 2022 and versus pre-2022 in terms of pricing, price of, in terms of risk? Will the, will the bees in a 2017 issue be viewed as a little bit more risky than, you know, a new, a new bee going forward? I think, I think there's two other, there's, there's two things here. I think, one is I don't think this would have happened if this were you, you didn't see any any WTCs being rejected by the big airlines. Um, these were sort of one-off deals by Norwegian and Latam. They they did one deal. They never came back to the market again. Most of the time, they would be financing their aircraft in the you know in the bank market or in the private placement market. So, you know they 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 were viewed as good credits at the time, but I think they were one-off deals, one-off issues for those two guys. So I don't, it's very unlikely that the a rejection by a big airline would happen going forward. So we wouldn't necessarily see this play out again, but you know, you, you could see it with, uh, you know, maybe one of the smaller airlines, you know, like a Turkish, Turkish Airways has one deal, uh, Virgin, Virgin Australia. You know, there's a couple of smaller deals that were done pre COVID that have this hole in them, which might, you know, might uh, lead to the same kind of thing happening. 
turn down so, jobs someday. Yeah. yeah. No, so I think I think the rec- the working group really were was there basically I think the recommended recommendation is being um accepted by the airlines and because the airlines don't want to see this happening again. You know, they, 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 it's not good for the airlines to have a, you know, a junior class, um, some way, you know, not getting fully repaid, um, because it, you know, it, it could inhibit the issuance of B of class B securities in the future. Sure. Yeah. It impacts the cost of capital for everyone. Yeah. Um, I guess maybe on that, on that point, I mean, what do you, what do you think about, some of these issuers that have maybe done one or two WTC deals coming back to the market, you know, can, can Latam, yeah. do you think if, if they wanted to issue another one, or is it what's, yeah. you know? So it's, it? yeah, that's a good point. I mean, so it, Latam is a very good airline. I mean, it, it, you know, they, they have about 300 airplanes under management, you know, it's a holding company. And then there's a couple of, you know, subsidiary airlines, you know, that then, you know, are distributed the, the aircraft. So the management team at LATAM and, and Norwegian as well, they're very, very good. They just got clobbered, you know, by, by, by COVID and, you know, by a, a complete shutdown in, in revenue from, you know, shutdown in global traffic. So, you know, they didn't have the resources of getting billions from their governments the way, you know, our, you know, uh, the developed, you know, country supported their, their airlines. And so they had, they really had, they really had no choice. I mean, it was a commercial decision that they, that they had to make. Um, so I think it might, you know, again, it's going to be a question of economics. Um, I think they'll, once they restructure and they have a couple of good years, you know, they'll probably slowly make their way back into the capital markets again, because if they are going to be growing, you know, the capital markets are the deepest markets for capital, especially for, you know, for airlines to uh, fund themselves. So, you know, I think if they, if they show a couple of more years of, of recovery and stability, um, you know, I think, uh, I think they will, they'll be able to come back. And again, I don't, again, I don't think that the, if, if the auction was, were properly, I hate to say, say they were probably held, but if, if the auction you know, was more, more normalized. I think the bees would have been fully repaid. You know, in in both cases. So, uh, I, I think it was a one-off situation. You know, a lot of things lined up. You know, for this to happen. So, and I think there are, there are a lot of a lot of people like the aviation working group that are looking at it and saying this 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 is bad for everybody. You know, uh, you know, uh, it, it just it's not that kind of that kind of action is bad for the for the industry. So I. I think there'll be a lot of support to fix the problem. Sure. Yeah. Well, it'll it'll be interesting to to watch going forward. I'll I'll drop a footnote uh, for the bankruptcy aficionados that uh, claims coming out of the rejection of the WTC leased aircraft in in Latam uh, and some other aircraft. Uh, settlements of the claims were challenged in bankruptcy court. And there's a, there's an interesting, nice Judge Garrity 57 or 58 page opinion issued in January of this year, um, sort of approving the settlements and denying some of the the objections from the UCC and another unsecured party that oh the allowed claim amounts were too high for X, Y, and Z reasons and some uh, alleged bad process. Uh, the creditors holding the claims were in a big RSA group, also supporting the plan at the same time. And it, the UCC sort of said, oh, there's some, you know, some shenanigans leveraging the larger plan process to obtain uh, 
more favorable fleet claim settlement, and then using those fleet claims to say that, oh, this, this particular group had at least two-thirds an amount of the class that wind up being the, the fulcrum and, and pretty important in the case if you're following that case. But um, yeah. that's, I mean, that's all for another day. Evan, I, you know, thank you for kind of going through this with us in so much detail and from the aviation perspective that uh, I know I certainly did not. And I, I can imagine, you know, a number of distressed people may not be as, as finely tuned on. My pleasure. So, yeah. Yeah, thank you. Uh, be well, and and maybe okay. we'll have you on again in the future. Go to the next one. Yep. Okay, Sean. Thank you. Thank you again for listening to this Rear Weekly Review. Find all our podcasts on the rear.com webinars and podcast page, as well as Spotify, iTunes, SoundCloud, and Amazon. Hope you had a great St. Patrick's Day. Hope your families are healthy and safe. Have a great weekend, and see you next Friday.